This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham join me to talk about federal politics. Then, feminist and writer Anne Summers joined me in the studio to talk about her fascinating life, which is detailed in her new memoir, Unfettered and Live. And then finally, Dr Joe Birch, curator of the University of Melbourne's Herbarium, joined me in the studio to talk about their collection, which has just been digitised and is now freely available to the public online. Yes, you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. This is Amy Mullins with you until noon on this Cup Day. It is not a public holiday in my view because universities do not have it off. Students do not have it off. Academics do not have it off. They are very hardworking citizens. And I have another hardworking citizen with me, Ben Eltham. Thank you very much for coming in on this fabulously rainy day. Well, just another day at the office, Amy. It is quite literally another day at the office. I might even have to go into the office, sit a little bit and do some marking. You will? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seriously. I, I did ask Ben. I'm like, I just want to double check. I don't want to like overstep the boundaries, but I'm pretty sure you're working, aren't you? And you're like, yeah. Always sure working, am. Amy. Because the academics are hardworking. Well, not according to Chris Kenny, the last time he talked to me on Twitter. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm a bit of a bludger. It is that. a right-wing fallacy to just... And they're an easy target too. Yeah, for some reason people think that teaching isn't hard work, um, you know, to which I say to anyone, teach a class for a couple yeah. of hours and then come back to me after that. Yeah. Teach a tutorial and have people stare at you with silence for like 10 seconds when you ask them a question. Yes, yes, that's always a bit demoralising, isn't it? <laughs> it I've had be. very sparky students in my classes this semester. Oh, so nice. It's been really great. Shout out to Ben's students. Yeah, thank you, my students in the Masters of Cultural and Creative Industries at Monash. You've Good been work. fantastic this semester. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's okay to cross the divide between Melbourne and Monash on this show. Um, now, Ben, federal politics, there's a lot happening as per usual. And um, I thought we might start out with with one of the the things that's quite shocking to me. We saw uh, Scott Morrison say, yes, we must send Malcolm Turnbull over to Indonesia for this Oceans Conference. He's our, you know, delegate over there. It's critical that he do this. Um, When plenty of his colleagues were questioning why on earth would you just send the former Prime Minister over to represent Australia. But that then led to quite a drastic conflict, a public conflict between Scott Morrison and Malcolm Turnbull, where uh, the the whole issue of the embassy, the Australian embassy that was floated during the Wentworth by-election, whereby uh, Morrison in the dying days um, was desperately trying to grab votes and uh, was suggesting that they that Australia may move uh, the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is a highly controversial diplomatic move of which Trump has executed that. Um, and so... Turnbull said, well, I I was actually there to, um, I guess, smooth things over because there's quite a few important diplomatic things going on, including an economic deal that was to be done between Australia and Indonesia that needed to be, um, you know, carried through. And so we then saw the actual current Prime Minister get on his horse and suggest that it was not part of the brief. 
Yeah, good summary, Amy. Uh, yeah, more chaos. To and fro, the, to and fro. More chaos in the Morrison government. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. This all goes back to the Wentworth by-election with that crazy scheme that they announced halfway through the last week to move the embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem without consulting anyone in the federal mm. public service, not even the ADF, um, not even... Uh, not even Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, um, who apparently found out about it in the media. <laughs> so, um, you it's a good know, way to wake up. Symptomatic, I think, of the, the disorganisation within Scott Morrison's office. They then sent Malcolm Turnbull over to this Oceans Conference, quite an important conference, by the way. Mm. The oceans being seven tenths of the world's surface and uh, a vital economic resource, obviously, for many nations. Um, and the idea, I think, was that Turnbull has a good relationship with uh, Indonesian President Jokowi and, uh, and that he would be you know a safe pair of hands and and i actually thought that this was a good move um you know it, it makes use of turnbull um he's he could be playing that elder statesman role it mm. probably prevents him from sniping at the government um well anyway that's that was the the plan but it didn't quite work out like that because um you know elements within the morrison government were incapable of holding their tongue and so they had a go at turnbull over his comments that appeared to throw shade on the Morrison government about the embassy. Of course, the, the Indonesian government's not happy about this, right? Mm. Um, they're not, not happy about it at all. Indonesia, obviously a majority Muslim nation. Um, it has some views about Israel and Palestine. Uh, it's our closest and most important neighbour. So uh, you would have thought that we would have consulted our, our most important neighbour before making such an announcement. But of course, no, we didn't. Uh, and so now we're in the kind of denouement of that little tiff where the two of them are sniping at each other in the social media. Now, it's not a good look for either of them, but it's a particularly bad look for the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, because um, he's scrambling for every scintilla of authority he can muster and uh, having a fight with his predecessor who he got rid of just a couple of months ago is uh, not the way to enhance any authority he might be looking to to keep exactly and i mean really what turnbull did was say um that jakawi had expressed concern and he said that there would be a very negative reaction in indonesia he was um, putting forward his own personal view of what he thinks would happen when asked at the conference he was actually there um it was part of the brief to smooth things over uh and but then to, to directly contradict malcolm turnbull is quite shocking really given the events of august whereby he was rolled by his own party it's it looks pretty petty it looks very petty and he's basically accusing turnbull of lying and i think we now know that it's morrison that's lying uh there's no doubt turnbull was asked to smooth over relations over the issue of the embassy uh if you really just needed to send someone to the oceans conference mm -hmm. i don't think you would send someone so senior someone so eminent you could probably make do with, I don't know, someone from the Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, but, yeah, look, I mean, it's symptomatic of the broader chaos within the Morrison government. It's actually hard to know what they're doing at the moment. They're certainly not governing. Right now, Scott Morrison is in a bus campaigning around Queensland. He's actually got his own campaign bus and he's driving around uh, the marginal seats of Queensland campaigning. 
Now, um, you know, obviously politicians are elected and they need to get out and talk to voters, but uh, this is kind of unprecedented for a sitting Prime Minister, Mm. not in an election campaign, in the middle of a term of government. Uh, There are pressing issues which face the nation, as you talk about every week, Amy, Um, and yet Morrison's taken a week off from Canberra uh, to, to basically go around and give speeches and do media opportunities. Yep, and potentially allay the concerns of his Queensland backbencher colleague. Well, they probably are concerned up there, as would all the backbencher colleagues be, because the polls remain absolutely terrible. Mm. There's an essential poll out today confirming what we already know, that Morrison's unpopular and his government's in deep trouble. I don't know what else you can really add to that. It's a, apart from that, it's just rolling chaos. you know. And, and Morrison's approach of putting out a new crazy little social media video. Video? Oh, yeah. Every God, day or two, that's, so painful. that's not working for him either. In fact, it, no. it's just making him... I mean, look, maybe it's playing to a different demographic than the sort of people like us who, who think he looks like a bit of a goose. But uh, again, it gets to that issue of prime ministerial authority and, and, and an agenda for mm. his term. I mean, Australians his- don't want a knockabout bloke if it's not genuine. I think they just want a proper leader who is wanting to lead on issues and do their job. You know, uh, I think Morrison may well be a knockabout bloke uh, when he's off duty. Um, You know, I don't know him. Um, Most voters don't know him. And that's the problem, isn't it? Most voters don't know him. And he's spending all of his time trying to introduce himself to the electorate. And that just underlines the problem here, Mm. which is that the coalition got rid of a proven leader in Malcolm Turnbull and replaced him with an unproven leader in Scott Morrison. And Morrison is manifestly struggling in the top job. It looks like an early election election campaign, which is, I guess, a bit painful for us Victorians who are actually in the midst of a state election campaign, because we don't really need any more of them. Um, But as you said, the essential poll came out and voter disapproval of the Prime Minister went up nine points. So that's a pretty big jump in terms of his conduct and the way that voters view him. Uh, But it is a bit surprising to see this whole idea of a bus, kind of like a billboard. It is a little bit Trump-esque to be like going around campaigning and, you know, when you're already elected to office, when there is no actual election going on. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's that's part of the issue here. There is no election campaign. The government hasn't called an election. Uh, so, you know, we would have thought that the prime minister of this country has things to do in the office, mm. uh, and 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 quite pressing issues. I would have thought. I mean, you know, um, the, the, there are, there are many things that he could be getting on with. Uh, just to name a few, you know, education yep. policy, for example, um, that, that's a perennial issue. Um, the government still hasn't come up with an energy policy, as we've discussed on this show a number of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, still flailing around there, working out what to do, how to find a way to try and build a new coal plant. Uh, and, um, you know, some of its ministers are, are absolutely struggling in their new roles, like Melissa Price, the environment minister, yeah. has been a bit of a it's train a wreck, pretty much. Um, just last week, we had the big flap over the research grants that you um, you talked to mm-hmm. Joy Musi about. So still an issue. 
Oh, absolutely, still away. an issue. We still haven't had an explanation from former Education Minister Simon Birmingham about what happened there. He hasn't no. really told us why he vetoed those particular grants. Well, he just said that the money would be better spent and he assumes the electorate would also agree with him. Yeah, and he may be right there, but that's not really a reason, is it? That's that's kind of just Populism. going... Populism. I didn't like him. <laughs> mm. so. I just didn't like the title. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the campaigning, I think, it does seem a bit hollow. And, um, you know, people already made lots of jokes about the bus and there's lots mm. of memes going around, people photoshopping funny slogans, jokes onto the side of the bus. Yeah. Um, the slogan itself that they came up with, um, by the way, um, has a punctuation error in it. Oh, and some I like people it. Have, some people have pointed out that um, there's an underline there um, that's underneath a blank space, which is kind of <laughs> a little bit embarrassing. Just but, a tad. But more to the point, you know, the, the the question has to be asked, What what is he doing this for? And so it's actually leading to election speculation. People are now saying, well, is he, is he going to call a new election, you know, an early election? Um, and can he do that? And why would he do that, given that they're struggling so much? Yes, so let's move to that. There is speculation and apparently chatter within the government at the moment that they would possibly consider... Uh, going to two separate elections next year i'm already really not knowing how to express this (laughs) without completely (laughs) laughing but um (laughs) that they would go to a senate election and then a house of representatives election about roughly six months apart and ben anthony green then has come out today making some interesting practical comments on the feasibility of such a ridiculous move yeah so constitutionally you can call separate elections for the house of representatives and the senate if you wanted to uh but governments haven't done this for more than 30 years uh for the obvious reason that um it's messy and it's uh, Mm. annoying and then people have to go and do a second vote and i think there would be backlash well, if I think you had to do it, there'd twice. be massive black backlash. I think. Yeah. Um, so, particularly if you do, if you call us a half senate election, for example, that's just for the senate, uh, you're not deciding who is the government. The government's mm. decided by a confidence on the floor of the house. So, what you're really doing is putting the government's numbers in the senate further in peril. And I think in that scenario, you, you could see um, some crazy results. All sorts of minor parties, even more than the current mob getting up um, and probably Labor increasing their representation in the upper house as well. It also increases a lot of uncertainties around the governance because um, you desynchronise, once again, you desynchronise the House and the Senate terms. Mm. Um, and as Anthony Green pointed out on Twitter this morning, um, the government wouldn't be able to pass the budget because the Senate would be adjourned for the half-Senate election. So um, it would seem to be a non-starter on constitutional grounds, but this government's so crazy, you know, you just can't predict. I know. I, I probably wouldn't have raised it if I thought it was that ridiculous, but they've done some pretty amazing thought bubbles recently um, that it is very hard to predict what's real and what's not real. Um, similarly, that's happening in America with a range of announcements that are kind of thought bubbles. 
Um, but Ben, there's also another issue, which is that they're trying desperately, they think, to have an early budget. They think that's somehow going to reset um, their standing in the electorate if they put forward their, their platform um, for the forthcoming election to set an agenda that is their own, that is the Morrison government agenda, not the Turnbull agenda. And so that's why they've even considered such a, a kind of drastic measure like that. Yeah, look, I I just don't know. It's really hard to get a read on the Morrison government. You know, as I was saying to a friend of mine the other day, it really is the C team, you know, (laughs) if you think about it. I mean, um, let's let's just, I mean, you know, let's cast our minds back to 2013 when the Abbott government comes into office. You know, um, since then we've had two changes of Prime Minister. We've had Mm. more than two cabinets, probably more like four cabinets, uh, and so a lot of these guys in Scott Morrison's office and indeed the senior cabinet ministers, uh, th- th- this is not the sort of top-tier talent in the coalition. And, and I think we're seeing some of that come out, you know, in, in some of the crazy decision-making over the last few weeks. Mm. And as you point out, they're also desperate because after removing a popular prime minister um, midway through his term, um, they really are feeling the heat from voters. And, you know, that that line that Morrison used about the Muppet show, that's really coming back to haunt him because people just keep... they seem That seemed to have really cut through, but in a bad way, right? So every crazy, silly decision he makes, every time he does a stunt on social media, people seem to remember that idea about the Muppet show, you know, and people start reciting the lines of the song, you know, it's time to put on makeup, (laughs) it's time to get things right. (laughs) Yeah, Twitter goes off. I do like it. Ben, you need to be able to make a joke sometimes when things are a little bit absurd. One of the other areas that's seen so much back and forth, um, it's hard to know what's what again, is um, the issue of immigration and asylum seekers. Uh, We've seen... You know, a lot of MPs feel quite nervous about the fact that doctors have been coming out saying, you know, children that are still on Nauru um, are very much at risk. Some are, you know, attempting suicide, some are considering suicide, some are unwell for other reasons, and that they need to be brought to Australia like now. And we've seen, um, you know, a range of things floated and there's been this kind of argy-bargy around the New Zealand option, which saw, um, you know, Scott Morrison brought it up a few times during the Wentworth by-election and then has kind of denied that he ever did and they've gone, oh, Labor did something and it's all Labor's fault somehow. And now Peter Dutton um, has come out. He's actually not even technically the Immigration Minister. No, he's, he's not. He's the Home Affairs Minister. And he said, oh, we've heard some chatter that said, you know, the New Zealand solution would be a bad option because it would restart the boats and that whole business model. I mean, where have we got to with this, Ben? And why is it? Why is everyone being kind of kicked around? Well, we've got to this point because after... 18 years of demonising refugees and asylum seekers, the intellectual bankruptcy of Australia's immigration policies are finally becoming apparent even to ordinary voters. And so I think the old rhetoric about ending the the people smugglers' business model and, you know, we can't let the boats start again, that kind of stuff, I think 
that's no longer ringing true with people. People know that that is largely a lie, hmm. actually, just it's pretty simply a lie. Um, what's stopping the boats from travelling to Australia is the Royal Australian Navy uh, with a large operation in the waters to Australia's north, um, boats being intercepted uh, and towed back to Indonesia, and that's why seaborne asylum seekers aren't reaching the Australian mainland. So this kind of... Um, this rhetoric that we need to be as cruel as possible to asylum seekers in order to deter them from making the voyage, um, I, I think people are starting to realise that, that that is a lie and it's just something that's cooked up um, to appeal uh, to xenophobic voters and really to the, the, the ever-dwindling coalition base. Mm. And so, yeah, we've had this, this crazy rhetoric. It doesn't even make sense about New Zealand. So if, if people leave Nauru and go to New Zealand, somehow this will be a uh, a pull factor bringing more people to australia um we're already sending hundreds of people from nauru to the united states under the u.s australia refugee deal negotiated between turnbull and trump a couple of years ago that's already happening so what's the difference between united states prosperous usa Mm. and you know new zealand i i I don't really think there is any difference and and most people don't either um, and by the way, of course, New Zealand wants to take them. So, you know, what is stopping these people from being sent? Basically, as usual, it's um, mean-spirited Australian politicians looking to score political points from their from their opponents. Mm. And one of the things which I don't know if many people would be aware of, and I certainly wasn't aware of, is that um, the Department of Home Affairs is appearing before a full bench of the federal court to argue that the court does not have the jurisdiction to hear cases involving transfers between Nauru, so refugees and asylum seekers on Nauru, to Australia for medical reasons. And the reason why this has come up is because a great majority of the transfers that have been conducted were because a court ordered them to occur and because we have human rights lawyers out there fighting the good fight against the government every time. And this has come up because an 11-year-old Iranian child um, who has been brought to Australia, um, you know, has has brought up this issue for the government and they thought, well, this is a way that we can then make sure that if we did succeed in the federal court, every court case would have to be heard in the high court. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, what can you say about a government that would fight to keep an 11-year-old um, from getting proper medical treatment? That's where we've got to in Australia's immigration debate. It's, pretty, it's a pretty mm. dark place. Um, in terms of the legalities of that, I mean, I'm not an immigration lawyer and it's an incredibly complex area. Um, it would seem to me that that will end up in the High Court. These these things always seem to end yeah. up in the High Court anyway. Uh, the High Court has been reasonably ineffective in restraining the worst impulses of Australian immigration policy and that's because Australia's major parties have made sure to amend the Migration Act at every opportunity to make it as inhumane as possible. In the end, uh, judges and and justices can only interpret the law that politicians write in the legislature Mm. and the law as it stands is incredibly harsh. So, um, you know, it may be that they win that case the government, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, well, either way, it's probably likely to be appealed, I'm sure. Um, But there is just, um, I guess, a really tragic sense in this whole issue. And certainly now that um, New Zealand has apparently been pulled off the table, um, even though it was put on uh, only a couple of weeks ago, it does bring me to the other development, which is that um, Karen Phelps has been confirmed finally as the official candidate for Wentworth now. She's been elected to that position. She's now the member. Um, which is a big deal and that also Dave Sharma is suggesting he's unlikely to recontest that seat given his experience. Yes, well, if I was Dave Sharma, I wouldn't be recontesting the seat because <laughs> I think Karen Phelps will hold that seat for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and no doubt he's thinking that a, a seat in the Senate might be a much more relaxed way to enter federal politics. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, why would you go again after the experience that he had yeah. um, and with the government, um, the way that they campaigned. I mean, they made it as difficult as possible for him, really, um, with their bungles and their chaos. Um, yeah, I mean, Wentworth's gone. Um, mm. So Phelps, I think, will be a really interesting member. I mean, you know, um, she she's, um, she's going to be an activist, I think. She's going to put forward policy she's going to look to sponsor private members bills and um she adds to the growing crossbench in the lower house Mm. so she joins people like andrew wilkie and kathy mcgowan um where she's got an opportunity now to affect federal politics and and i think she'll seize that opportunity and do some pretty interesting things Mm. well this is a subtle reminder that we are in fact in a minority government situation Yes, we are. I mean, as I mentioned last week, I don't think it's as big a deal as people make out because the crossbenchers continue to guarantee their support for Mm. the government. Oh, it's not unstable, but it's just the fact that the Morrison government has kind of nothing to see here. Yeah, pretty much. Well, um, where it does affect potentially the government is if it starts to lose bills, if it starts to lose votes on, on the lower house. Um, and that's a possibility. And that might lead to things like Peter Dutton being referred to the High Court over his citizenship status. Mm-hmm. There might be another coalition MP in trouble over Section 44. We're not quite sure at this stage. you know. And if they lose another MP, then things get really difficult for them. They do. Um, so, you know... Um, even though at the moment they're, they're continuing to govern as per normal, if they were to lose another MP, then I think we might be in early election territory then. Mm. And the Senate comes back next week. Yes, I believe so. Yes, yeah. they do. I know, because I'm going. Oh, of course you yeah. are. Yeah, congratulations. Thank That's you. so amazing. I'm so excited. Um, I'm getting very into my... I should let everyone know I'm writing a lecture, which is... <laughs> disturbing um i'm really excited about it though because it's for the senate uh, it's for this senate occasional lecture series and it's about the the 75th anniversary of the first women elected to the federal parliament in the house of representatives and the senate uh, who was the first woman amy Enid Lyons, Mm -hmm. who was in the lower house and she was part of the UAP, which was the Nationalist Party and then part of the um, newly formed Liberal Party. That's right. Created by Menzies. And then, of course, we had a Labor senator, Dorothy Changney, and she uh, was elected at the exact same time and she was a WA uh, senator. And, of course, Enid was from Tasmania. So it was pretty shocking that uh, it took so long, from 1902 to 1943, to get women 
elected to parliament in the, the federal parliament. The states were much earlier. That's quite an honour, Amy, and um, you know, congratulations to you for that, you. that opportunity. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Well, it's also really important because um, Enid Lyons is you know high profile woman. She um, was the wife of. Uh, one of our former prime ministers uh, but of course it's not as much of a, a hoo-ha has been made about Dorothy Tangnian so I think it's really important to look back not just at the women who were the first to be elected to federal parliament but what about all those women who ran as candidates for years and years not getting up and I think we should also pay tribute to those women. Yes, and of course, um, the suffragette movement in Australia in the early part of the 19th century was very strong, wasn't it? Very, yes. Vita Goldstein was one of the first to run for the Senate um, when they got not only the right to vote, but the right to stand for Parliament at the same time. And uh, I think we do recognise some of these pioneering women by naming federal seats after them, Mm, don't we? So Goldstein... In the southeast of Melbourne, that's yep. that's named after Vita, isn't it? Yeah, and Lyons has been named after both Enid, yes, and her husband, but uh, not Dorothy. So, right, just saying, there's some work to be done. But uh, if anyone is wanting to watch that lecture, it'll be live streamed on Friday the sixteenth at quarter past twelve. Or if you're in Canberra, come on down. It's in the theatre at Parliament House. Um, I'll tweet that out, Amy, because I think that, that people should um, hopefully look in look into that because that, that looks mm. like it'll be really good. Um, and I don't know, yeah, maybe Triple R should do something, play it <laughs> or something, replay the speech, Put it in. simulcast it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can do a live cross. Yeah, live cross from Canberra. I'll Straight. get my press pass. Are you in the Great Hall? Where are you speaking? Uh, I was in the main committee room, but it's been moved to the theatre, which is in a big theatre. It's actually quite scary. Oh yeah, that, that's a lovely picture. space actually. It's, it is beautiful. Yeah. There's like some plush red seats, very sanity. Absolutely, very senatorial. Yeah, yeah, very red. So, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and I think there's going to be some, you know, interesting discussions in the Q&A. Yeah, well, yeah. well done again. Thanks. That I've been speaking with Ben Eltham, who uh, we've been talking about federal politics and you're going off to work now, Ben. Yes, I've got some marking to do. Yeah, good on you, good on you, um, Ben, going to work there. He's one of the many hardworking academics today who don't get a day off on Cup Day, neither do the students, as I said. So a big shout-out to them and anyone else who's working on this public holiday uh, in our other areas, such as hospitality. I know there's quite a few people working there. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. And you're tuned in to 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio Anne Summers, feminist, author, columnist, public speaker, many other things, and she joins me in the studio to talk about her new memoir, Unfettered and Alive. Hi there, Anne, and thank you for joining me. Lovely to be here. It's so great to have you in to chat, Um, and this memoir of yours really is such a huge adventure, really, in terms of the things you've done, the places you've been. But I want to start out with some of the things that you've um, spoken about in the past around the spring point of this book, which is when you're 30 and you 
you've just published your um, very well-known book, Damned Whores and God's Police. And I know that in previous interviews, you've talked about the kinds of approach that second wave feminism had in the 60s and 70s when you were looking at your predecessors, the other, you know, suffragettes and mm. and so on, and how you viewed them. And the, I guess that you made a, a point of difference. You were very particular in the type of feminism you were talking about and the terminology was also quite different such as women's liberation Mm. so at that time what was your um, view and how did you define yourself and how did others define themselves in the women's liberation movement Mm. well I mean as you said we didn't use the term feminism initially I mean I'm talking about the late 60s I mean I um, was was part of the very small group. I think there were six women um, who formed the first Adelaide Women's Liberation Group uh, at Adelaide University in 1969. And we thought feminism was a kind of old-fashioned word and a politically conservative word. And we were all fairly radical in our politics. We were very much against the Vietnam War. We were kind of involved in the student revolt that was happening uh, to some extent then. And now, we came across the ideas of what we now call feminism um, initially through Marxism. And, the, you know, the, I was first introduced to, to, the, to the concept that women were still lagging behind when it came to equality by a woman called Juliet Mitchell in an article which was initially published in New Left Review, which was a British publication and subsequently published as a book in which she outlined the areas in which women were still inferior um, or discriminated against in modern society. In that article, total, it was called Women, the Longest Revolution, and that just completely opened my eyes because I um, thought of myself as a modern, emancipated woman and I didn't... I mean, I, I actually did know, but it didn't... It, it hadn't... Had, because I'd applied for jobs and, you know, the rates of pay that I was going to get were much less than, than for men. So, I mean, I knew that there was inequality, but somehow I didn't have a political framework in which to understand it. And her article... Uh, provided that and then and I read that actually in 1967 so that was sort of got me started and the, mm. the women's liberation ideas came along a year or so later and they were mainly from the United States and the radical women in the United States started you know becoming very militant and very um, creative in their language and very exciting and I um, uh, along with a lot of other women of my age we were in our early 20s then uh, responded and we decided we'd do the same thing create, mm. create our own groups and did that lead you in in that journey? Did that lead you to start to write a book? Did you have set out thinking I'm going to write no, a, no, a book? No, I mean I think I mean I I originally started writing Damned Whores and God's Police in either seventy one or seventy two. I can't remember now, but but it was after I moved to Sydney um, from Adelaide, and I. I'd, I'd read everything that was coming out of Britain and the United States. I mean, there were some fantastic books then. There was Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics. There was, of course, Jermaine Greer's book. Um, there was another book called The Dialectic of Sex by a woman called Shulman Firestone, who's not so well known today, but, but was quite a big book then. There was Sisterhood is Powerful, which was an anthology of, of, of radical writings about women. There was lots of this fantastic stuff, and, and there was also a lot of history. And what I realised is that these these political arguments and these um, analyses of society were based on other countries, not our own. And it seemed to me that we needed 
uh, something in particular. I was particularly interested influenced by Kate Millett's book Sexual Politics because she was, even though it's a work of literary criticism in, in a sense, but she was still analysing the literature of, of the United States and all of, the, all of the cultural references were to the United States. And I just started thinking, thinking, well, what we really need is a book that would look at Australia and look at Australian customs and Australian mores. And initially I had thought, and when I went to Penguin, I pitched it as a book that would be uh, a critique of mateship. And I saw it as quite narrow. Mm. Um, And they loved the idea and they said, sure. Uh, But as I started writing it and researching it, it kind of grew and grew because I realised that I really need to kind of... If, if I could if I could find the wherewithal to do it, and I'm very glad that in the end that I did, but it was a very daunting prospect because I, des- I decided what was needed was to actually take on the whole of Australian history and re- re-examine it, if you like, through feminist eyes. And that's what I tried to do, as well as that was sort of half of the book and the other half was a um, an, an analysis informed by feminism of contemporary society, Australian society in the early 1970s. Mm. And it was interesting to me that you talked about your aunt, one of your aunts, who was not married mm. and did not have children, and that she was somewhat influencing you without your noticing it at the beginning at least in terms of the options that you had available to you as a woman at the time I mean it's hard for us now to look back and think that there were such restrictions on women but there were certainly ones enshrined in law that were that if if one got married um, you couldn't be in the public service you couldn't be in the front bar of a pub and so I just wonder when you were forming yourself and finding out what kind of woman you were, uh, especially at that beginning of your career when you were moving into journalism, what were the factors? What do you think influenced you the most? Apart from your aunt who definitely set you on a path, what were some of the other key people or moments at the beginning that seemed to well, put every, you on a path? It was everything. I mean, one, it's, it's, once you apply a feminist lens I guess is the word that's used these days I'm not sure that I like that word very much but you know a feminist analysis or a feminist perspective uh, on the world I mean everything changes because you just you, 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 you see how unfair things are you see where where women are excluded or women are treated uh, with hostility or women are discriminated against whether it's in pay or in opportunity or um, access to jobs or you know, access to um, to culture or whatever it is, and and once you once once you start seeing the world that way, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really can't unsee it. And why would you want to? And also, you you, you keep seeing um, new every time you see it, encounter something new. You kind of analyze it through that perspective. So it was a kind of an evolving process rather than you know one single set of mm-hmm. events or one single person. But, I mean, I kept then re- we kept realising, and again, we were kind of prompted a bit by some of the stuff that was coming out of the States, and we realised, you know, we're in the, in the um, anti-war movement, you know, which is co- totally led by men. Yeah. And that we, even though there were you know, quite a lot of women there, we were expected to, you know, make the cups of tea and wash up after the meetings and, you know, get the rooms ready for the meetings and do the radioing of the pamphlets and all that stuff. We, so we were the housewives of the revolution, if you like. I thought, well, that's not right. Um, so, the, you know, we just realised that even the radical alternative universe that we thought we were in mm. still um, exhibited a lot of the characteristics of the, of the mainstream society when it came to male superiority and male dominance. Mm. So 
You've been in and worked in many male-dominated fields and especially at the time journalism was male-dominated at all levels, not just the editor levels that we still see today. Um, You worked as a political journalist in the press gallery in Canberra, which is also, as you say, very male-dominated, though there were great women like Michelle Grattan. Mm But in in that time when you're working in those types of environments where you need to, I guess, mould yourself to a certain culture to fit in, how did you maintain your own sense of self and and feminist approach? Like, as you say, the lens that you had, how did you navigate those particular fields? Um, Well, (laughs) you're talking about, you know, maybe eight years of my life, so it it, it wasn't um, a single experience. I mm. mean, often it was quite difficult figuring out how to kind of fit in, do your job. I mean, trying to understand the mores of the place, understand the codes of conduct, for example, in the press gallery. And although, I mean, there were a lot of, there were three women bureau chiefs, and I don't think there even are that, that today. Mm. So apart from Michelle Grattan and me, there was also Gay Davidson at the Canberra Times. So it wasn't and there were quite a lot of women in most of the bureaus. So it it wasn't as bad a situation as you might think, looking back. It was actually, you know, quite... I wouldn't say it was completely equal, and, mm. but you did have a lot of top jobs held by women and there were a lot of other women there. You know, one of the most interesting challenges in those press gallery years was to sort of work out your relationship with the politicians. And mm. the, although the press gallery, you know, was hardly a feminist paradise but you know there were quite a lot of women there more than more than perhaps you'd think but when it came to politics there were very few women politicians mm. and very I mean amazingly few and, and we're talking about the late I started the press gallery in 79 and was there until 84 and you know I can't tell you the exact number now I forget but, but there was one woman in cabinet and I think there were only about two women in the House of Representatives and, you know, maybe mm. three or four in the Senate. It was a very, very tiny number. So basically politics was, was male-dominated and a lot of the politicians, or not all of them, but, you know, a number of them sort of saw the women journalists as fair game. So there was, a, you know, particularly the younger ones, young radio journalists, and a lot of them used to have a hard time. They'd go do an interview with the Cabinet Minister at night and, you know, he'd chase them around the desk and that, mm. that kind of thing. And that was, um, you know, we just sort of had to deal, you know, work out how to, to deal with that and basically put the word out, never go and interview this guy at night and, you know, and just keep keep an eye out on this person. But I have a few stories in the book about some of the encounters I had with with various politicians who were, you know, either a bit sleazy or, you know, out-and-out sexist and things that they said, the way they treated you. But not everybody was like that. I mean, I, because I was with the Fin Review, I mean, and I, if the politicians wanted to talk to the Financial Review's audience yep. uh, of business people and, and bureaucrats, well, they had to talk to me. So uh, that meant that was a bit of a constraint on, on some of them. Mm. And you talk about some of those encounters you had with Malcolm Fraser because you were often part of the press pack that would follow Malcolm around. Mm. It is interesting just how much he appears to have changed over his life. You know, at the end of his life, he seemed like he was even further to the left of the Labor Party. But at the time, it, it does really sound like he had a very kind of stern approach mm. and he somewhat softened his personality or at least that's how it appears possibly at, yeah possibly I'm, maybe. Not sure, I'm not sure that i buy that but, <laughs> um i can't I, I had nothing to do with him in, in the later years so I, I wouldn't want to comment on that but i mean i know plenty of people who 
and I thought he was wonderful and, and that he was completely different. Um, but certainly in, in the years that I knew him in, in Canberra, he was, you know, he was a bastard towards you know, his staff, his, his, his colleagues, his, uh, the journalists. Um, you know, I think it basically underneath he was probably very shy, mm. uh, but nevertheless uh, he was the Prime Minister and he should have been more civil uh, towards people than, than he was. You mentioned in the book that there were so many men in power that you met and came across who took power and performed their masculinity in one way and then, you know, altered themselves at the end and seemed to be a bit kinder. Do you wonder whether that is some kind of element of the patriarchy or the performative elements of masculinity that men might slide into quite easily? Well, I, what I was talking about there is you know, observing that um, a number, and I was talking about this in the context of my own father, who was never a very powerful man in the world, but but he was, you know, he was within his family, and he exercised that power rather rather um, you know, forcefully. But, you know, once he, he got older and he got sick, he got cancer, mm-hmm. and he went into a not- notable physical decline. And the frightening person who he had been when I was a child, you know, became this kind of quite almost pathetic old man. And I was commenting on that, that I'd, I'd observed this happening or a comparable process happening in men who'd been in very powerful public positions, like, like running big companies or, you know, running, for example, the Defence Department. Though I, don't, I don't have any particular def- head of Defence Department in mind, but, but been running big organisations, mm. someone who'd been powerful and brutal in the way they conducted themselves when they were in those powerful positions. And, you know, I, I knew a lot of them who, you know, once they retired and uh, no longer did those jobs and they softened and they kind of smelt the roses and, you know, they became different types of people. And, you know, the question that raises for me is, and what does this mean? That in order to, to run something, you have to be a bastard, you have to be brutal? And does that mean if women go to run things, they have to be brutal as well? Mm. Or, I mean, is this, is, I mean, I'm just commenting really on, is, is this the model? Is this the only model we have for leadership and for, um, uh, for being in charge of, of things? And, and I'm obviously hoping that it's not. <laughs> yes. Well, that does remind me of a very recent chat between Julia Gillard and Jacinda Ardern um, where she was saying she hopes to have a different model of leadership that involves compassion rather than, you know, gusto and bravado that she sees a lot of other political yeah. leaders um, utilising yeah. to get what they want. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting, I think, to watch Jacinta Ardern. I mean, for, 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 for a couple of reasons. I mean, not only because of who she is and how, her, her style is very, very refreshing and, you know, mm. she's young and she's... Uh, unlike any politician, you know, we've seen, I think, if not ever, certainly in a while, yeah, and not in this country. But she's the third woman Prime Minister of New Zealand. So first of all, they, they have a tradition there. Or they, yes. they're, they're creating a tradition of women leaders that we have still not been able to do in this country. We've only had one and we treated her uh, shamefully. And, you know, we need to have some more, I think, as quickly as possible so that we can learn to, to do it better. Mm. Um, so Jacinta is operating within a different context because of, the, that, of that past. So that's, that's helpful. Yep. And uh, it is a smaller country and it's a more tolerant country, I think, in lots of ways than, than Australia. So I think that she can behave differently. Mm. 
Uh, whether or not the next woman Prime Minister of Australia can behave like that well, remains to be seen. I mean, let's hope so, but I think it would be great if we could do it as quickly as possible <laughs> and get on, with, get on with making it normal. I agree. That's true. It is really about normalising female leadership. Mm. It reminds me of when you became the first Assistant Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. and Of the Office of the Status of Women. Yes, running that particular division and office. And, you know, your experience there I found fascinating, having um, watched women's policy. I was really surprised to discover that the uh, women's budget program had been under brought forward in the Hawke government because I was only aware of it in the early Labor governments mm-hmm. of Kevin Rudd. And I was just really surprised that, and it seemed to highlight that you can have gains and make progress and feel like, you know, you've done something quite radical that is going to make huge uh, change in the sense that you're reviewing every policy and deeming whether it has an impact upon women or not instead of it being just what's women's policy in inverted commas, you know, it's childcare, it's paid parental leave and all that kind of thing, that applying a gender lens, so to speak, across all areas of policymaking and departments was quite a radical thing mm. to do. Mm. And we did have it mm. for almost a decade, I believe. We're the first country in the world to do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and influenced other countries yes. to yeah. take it up. Yeah. But now we're really very, very behind and we've reverted mm. back to this kind of pigeonholing of, of women's policy issues and not looking at all issues as women's issues and all mm. issues as an issue for gender equality. And you do write in the book about economic policy being about women. Mm. What are your thoughts about that that kind of reversion and the fact that you need to be so vigilant to be able to achieve and sustain that kind of progress? Well, I think it's it's more than vigilance that's required. I mean, Mm. one of the things that I have learnt, um, you know, having been in in this game quite a long time now, is that, and as I as I I've got a chapter in the book called "The Getting of Anger," in which I describe, um, you know, what John Howard did when he he got into power in 1996. And I've also written a whole book about this called "The End of Equality" that was published in 2003. So I'm revisiting uh, some of that material in this book, but in a slightly different, putting it into a different context. But I used to think that once you'd changed something, it was changed for good. I mean, I I had had no personal experience um, in my lifetime of reforms that were meant to be of benefit and which clearly were a benefit to the society being being retracted and being um, being abolished. So I knew that, you know, one of the things when I was first starting out and first writing this stuff and writing Damned Horse, I, I knew that during the Second World War that women had been in the workforce, they were paid equal pay, you know, they, were, they did all sorts of jobs they'd never been allowed to do before and as soon as the war was over they were kicked out of those jobs and they went back to paying them unequally and everything changed and I thought, well, okay, that was the war, you know, mm. that was the war, that's why that happened, that was terrible but that was the war, he could explain it. And now suddenly it's happening, it's not the war, it's, it's ideology, you know. It's, it's a new government comes in and uh, has a very different view of what women should be and, um, and imposes that view on women and on society. Um, and that, I was really completely shocked by that and, mm-hmm. and also got, got very angry about it uh, because it was just, it was um, turning back the clock and it wasn't just you know, because we hadn't been vigilant. I mean, it, we were completely you know, gobsmacked when all this yeah. stuff happened and couldn't believe that you would be so, in a sense, irrational as to uh, want to get rid of reforms that were not only social justice reforms that were good in their own 
you know, in their own right, mm-hmm. but they were a benefit to the society, but which also had, you know, embodied a statement about what you think about women. And here you have a government saying, well, you know, we just think basically women should go back and have babies. And that was what the Howard government was all about, you know. And that, so ever since then, I've kind of realised that the, the fr- fragility of the reforms that we have, and there's mm. no... I mean, childcare is another example. I mean, childcare policy has just changed so dramatically, and it's now such an... I mean, it's never been great, but we were trying to work our way towards a, a coherent system, mm. um, and that's all gone by the by. I mean, they're yeah. spending a fortune on it, but it's, it's not working. It's not working. It's a total mess, yeah. Yeah, and really, in your life's trajectory, you've brought up in this book quite a few times the tension that you had between, you know, this desire to be an activist and change things and mm. really get straight to it and not beat around the bush, so to speak, and then this other kind of role you had as being an observer and mm. looking in from the outside. I mean, how do you reconcile that tension? Do you feel like you've ended up becoming one more than the other or you've managed to to find a peace with it? Well, it's, it's certainly been a constant tension in my mm. life, I'd say, since um, the 70s. I mean, I, I started out uh, thinking I would be a writer and a journalist, or hoping I would be. But but I, I've also been an activist from you know ever certainly since university days, and I've always been um, unable to ignore injustice, and un- unable to just sort of uh, sit by and and watch something that I believe is wrong. And so I I guess I've alternated throughout my life in, and that's, that's accounted in some ways for some of the drastic changes in my career. Like when I left journalism in the press gallery and went to run the office of status of women. I did it, not because it occurred to me to do it, I was asked to do it and it was suggested to me I'd, I'd, I'd do it and I was sort of like, wow, really? Could I do that? Mm. But then I thought, well, why not? I mean, this would be an incredible opportunity for me to use my knowledge of, of uh, women's issues, my, 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 no, my knowledge about what needs to be done and see how much you can actually do if you're inside the bureaucracy in the most powerful department of the government with a, a supportive government mm. I mean, this is like, you know, a, a perfect, the opposite of a perfect storm, you know, the perfect. Yes. Um, so it was just a perfect situation. And I kind of found found it irresistible. So I did it. So I had to set aside my, um, uh, so, I, mean, I mean, you wouldn't say I was an activist in the bureaucracy because obviously, you, you know, you had to conform to bureaucratic norms and all the rest of it. But I was no longer an, uh, an observer in writing about it. So it was some, somewhere in between. And then there's been other periods of my life when I've just been you know, almost a pure activist. So I kind of oscillate between the two. They're, all those elements mm-hmm. are part of me and some of them come to the fore at different times according to circumstances or opportunities. Um, and there's always a conflict. I'm, I mean, when I'm there as a reporter, I wish I was there as an, you know, as a participant. And yeah. I talk about that conference I went to in Prague for Greenpeace in mm. 2000, and you know how frustrating I found that. And I um, concluded, well, maybe I would have been better off at that conference as a reporter rather than as a participant. It might have been easier if I'd had the, the cover of the notebook and you know had an excuse to go and talk to people and interview them, mm. uh, where, whereas just standing around as a, as a participant, I felt that I was not very effective. Mm. And it does bring me to this other 
point, which I'm really interested in your observations on, is that you went to America, you've lived in America, you are currently living in America, um, in Brooklyn, and so you've had this experience of two very, very different cultures and economies and, um, and worked in journalism in both countries. And I just really was interested when you, you wrote that um, you thought the US, when you returned to Australia in the early 90s, was far less progressive than Australia at that point in time. This is before John Howard took office and this is the Keating mm. era of which you um, became a, an advisor to him for a mm. short period of time. What were the things that Australia seemed to be doing better in or what were the differences that you observed between the two countries? Mm. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the differences which still um, obtains today is the political representation of women. I mean, Australia is far, far ahead of the United States um, so you've got at the moment with the midterm elections, you have a record number of women running. I think you've got something like you know, 262 women running for office, and that's you know very significantly more than the previous record, which is in 2016. Mm. You look at the—I don't have the numbers with in front of me right now, unfortunately, but I, I did have them ready for Q and A the other night, and they because <laughs> I was they were meant to ask me about it, and then they didn't. Yeah. So I did have them at the ready, but. I said something like, you know, Australian Parliament, I think it's like 37% or something of women and uh, the Congress is something like 23%. Mm. So there's a marked difference and it was even worse, um, you know, back then when we're talking 20 years ago. The other area where back then, you know, we, we were, I hoped was we were on our way to making a decent childcare system and we certainly you know, had, a, I think, a, a good design for it and, and good principles being applied to it. The Americans have always been terrible on childcare because they don't agree that government should do it. I mean, Americans have a very different attitude to government providing services than, than we do. And so a lot of things that we would expect government to do, they don't. They're, either, they're done privately or, or not at all. Mm-hmm. So those are the sorts of things that, that I was thinking about. And also the women's movement in the States then and, and even now, not, I'm not really involved in the women's movement at the moment, uh, in the US, but I, you know, I observe things, but I don't. I'm not going to meetings or anything. But but when I was living there in the 80s, and when I was editing Ms. Magazine, I mean, I used to be struck by the extraordinary preoccupation um, of so many of the women's movement with pornography, and that they were interested in issues like that, and they weren't interested in equal pay or childcare or any of the economic issues that I thought were kind of you know, more more important, more relevant, and more um, determining of, of of a woman's um, ability to um, you know forge her own way in the world. Um, so, it's just a very different approach. I mean, things like abortion obviously is a huge issue in the states. It's become more so here, but I mean, it's just massive there, and and at the moment for very good reason, for very frightening reasons. But it's always I think Americans have a much greater preoccupation with sex sexuality and related issues than we do. That is a really interesting point. It's certainly I interviewed a male academic in feminism, radical feminism, in fact, from Texas, and he had that approach of looking at prostitution and pornography um, as key feminist issues of our time. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, I think they're they're relevant. Mm. Uh, I'm not not trying to discount them, but I I do not think they are the key issues. I think the economic issues. Well, as I put in the Women's Manifesto that I developed a couple of years ago, which people can look at on my website, and it's free. um, 
I developed the four principles of women's equality and they, you know, they're all to do with the fundamental things that women need to be able to do in order to control their own lives and everything, I would argue anyway, everything else springs from that. If you've got control of your fertility, if you've got the ability to be financially self-sufficient, if you're free from violence mm. and you've got access to political representation, most, you can pay, deal with most other things. Yes, yeah. And it reminds me that you do talk about the gender pay gap and the fact that um, we seem to be doing quite well um, at one point. What are some of the areas of unfinished business? And I know there are a lot of them, but <laughs> I'm just thinking that, you know, you write towards the end of the book, we need to have an idea of what success looks like. Mm. And so within that context, what are some of the things that we've kind of just not made enough um progress on and that would lead to the picture of success mm. that we should be aiming for i think what, what this this is a, this is an idea that i kind of been been grappling with for a few years now and it came from originally from a speech that hillary clinton made in san francisco um a few years ago when she was still secretary of state and she convened a big summit in san francisco on on women and the economy and she um it was a fantastic summit and she gave a really interesting speech mm which unfortunately is no longer on the State Department website, so you can't find it anymore. But she talked about um, the idea... She differentiated between progress and success, and I found that a really useful concept for trying to sort of understand where we are because, you know, we have made a lot of progress, uh, but we're not there yet. So, And we, we, we've, I think we've conflated progress and success and progress, you know, is making changes and doing things, but what is success and what does it look like? And I don't think we've ever really asked ourselves that, except, in, you know, we say we want equality. Well, of mm. course we do, but what does that mean? What, what, what will that look like? And so I found that quite a useful kind of analytical tool uh, to apply to things and I think and also to try and force us to to think, okay, well, what what do we want? What will success look like? And, you know, within that framework, I mean, there is still so much unfinished business. And I think, you know, all of the economic things that I just mentioned, I mean, they're all still, you know, uh, incomplete. Um, and and of, of all of them, I think probably violence is, is one of the worst because that's, that seems to be almost out of control yes. in our society at the moment. We have, you know, extraordinarily high murder rate of women, um, you know, some, there's been some terrible weeks when it's been one woman a day killed. Um, but we know that every day women are being, you know, beaten or harassed or controlled or coerced or, you know, sub subject to varying degrees of violence, mostly in their own homes. Um, we think it's increasing. I think it's increasing. I mean, we don't know for sure. Is it increasing or are we just talking about it more? I mean, probably mm. a bit of both. Uh, but I think it is increasing because I think there's increasing pushback by some men against women's um, independence. The, the toll on, on the, you know, of this violence is really horrendous, and I don't think we're you know we we are putting a lot of money into research, and we're putting you know some Victoria is pretty good at putting money into services, better than than some of the other states. But even so, we're not really grappling with what this is all about and how do we stop it so you know to me that's one of my very big you know issues that i think we have to really get serious about mm. well it's difficult to confront because it's really one sex the majority of that being men perpetrating yeah, that yeah. violence and yes. so it does make it uncomfortable to confront yeah absolutely yeah it's yeah. It's, it's, it's certainly not an easy one I mean, if mm. it was we might have 
a bit more luck. But it's 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 not only is it not easy, but it, as you say, it goes to the sort of um, heart of of relations between the sexes. It goes to the very heart of of um, you know masculinity, if you like, or some some forms of masculinity and some forms of femininity. And I mean, a lot of women are. You know, haven't developed the um, the tools to resist this, or to to, not, to know that you know this this kind of domination is wrong, or how mm. to detect the signs and to get away in time, or to you know not get, enter into a relationship with a man who's exhibiting those sorts of tendencies. And you know, I'm, one thing that that kind of disappoints me is, I, you know, after all these years, you'd hope that women and girls would be a bit better equipped to um, navigate their way through the world and, and so many of them aren't yes. and I find that very sad. Yes, it really is still a process of trial and error in one's teenage years and 20s. Mm, mm, um, mm, you're mm. just trying to find your way. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that too. I mean, I, one of the things that strikes me, and I don't, don't mean to sound sort of patronising or unkind, but I, I just find that a lot of young women that I, I encounter and meet and read about and talk to um, are extraordinarily passive and 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 scared and and they don't have the kind of bravery and the, the bravado that we had and when we were the same age my age my generation was and I don't really know why that is and I just you know it seems to me sad that all we the things that we did to kind of shed our conditioning and we've been brought up to be nice little polite girls and you know we certainly weren't brought up to be you know Amazons or <laughs> Whatever, um, but we we underwent a co- conscious process of, if you like, deconditioning. It was called consciousness raising, and mm-hmm. we, you know, it was a kind of quite political act where we tried to kind of unlearn all the things that we'd been taught that you know because we equated you know femininity with with um, inferiority and and, uh, and not having the ability and the skills to you know just sort of stand up for yourself. We didn't want to be protected, and we didn't want to be you know, on a pedestal, we wanted to be free and independent people. And so you learn to stand up for yourself and to, to be a bit stroppy. Mm. And there's this great song by this Melbourne, I mean, she's not, no longer with us, she's dead, Glenn, Glenn Tomasetti, a wonderful uh, folklorist in Melbourne, and she wrote this song, which is sort of a bit of an anthem for the women's movement for a while, called Don't Be Too Polite Girls. <laughs> and it's a fabulous song, and we worth you trying to dig it up. But um, it seems to me today that, that, that those lessons have kind of been lost. They haven't been passed down mm. adequately. or to. I mean, I, I know plenty of young girls who aren't like that, but... Yes. But it does seem to be a bit of a, you know, a, a widespread trend. And so I keep saying to girls, you know, be bold, you know, stand up for yourselves and, you know, fight back. It doesn't matter that people won't like you. It doesn't matter. You don't want those sort of people to like you anyway if they're not going to respect you. Politeness isn't going to get you to equality. No, no. And Summers, it's been amazing to speak with you and I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's been it's been fun. I didn't realise our time was up. Yeah, I would definitely keep going if I had more of your time. Oh, okay. Well, that no, was a very fantastic interview. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, good. Very, yeah. very thoughtful. Thank you so much. Yeah. And that was my interview with Anne Summers that I pre-recorded uh, a week or so ago and uh, she's on her book tour at the moment to promote her new memoir Unfettered and Alive which does it covers quite a, a large period of time she's actually written two memoirs um, this one starts uh, at the publication of Damned Whores and God's Police um, so yeah a huge um, 
amount of things Anne Summers has achieved. And if you want to listen back to uh, the rest of that interview, it will be on uh, SoundCloud, on On Demand at rrr.org.au and also on iTunes if you search for Uncommon Sense Triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM, 102.7 FM on your dial. You can also stream it online, which you uh, may know of. So, as I said, it's raining. Do uh, stay dry if you can. Um, it's a fascinatingly uh, interesting weather picture for the Melbourne Cup. And anyone who's looking to be um, going to that, I say good luck to you. Uh, but I am luckily dry in this beautiful station, having it all to myself. And uh, a a wonderful guest has wandered in from the street. Um, Surprised she's even dry. Um, (laughs) I think there were quite a few layers there. Um, But I've got with me Dr. Jo Birch, who is the curator of the University of Melbourne's Herbarium. And uh, she's come in all the way from Parkville to say hello and talk about the herbarium and uh, the fact that it's been digitised. Hi there, Jo. Hi, Amy. Hello. Thanks for having me yesterday at the herbarium. Look, it was a real pleasure to show you around the herbarium and thanks for having me in today just to talk about it a little more. Yeah, like I just thought, honestly, I've been to every other building at the university and this one, which is the Natural Philosophy Building... That's right. Yeah. We're tucked away a little bit, aren't it's we? It's weird. It's like it's opposite the Union House. So, I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a thoroughfare really. But I kind of looked at it and went, oh, it looks like it's closed. How am I going to get in? And then you go up these like stairs and it's just going back in time to another world. Um, it's kind of like those the building that hasn't been touched yet. Um, and then you go into the herbarium, which itself is quite unassuming. And there's these beautiful wooden cabinets. Um, can you describe them for me and, and kind of tell them, tell us what they're all about? Look, the cabinets house our collection and the collection is of samples that have been made from work in the field. A lot of quantify, you know, our work is about describing biodiversity Mm. and that work takes us out to very remote locations in some urban, some rural, a whole across the gamut of wherever you find plants and algae Mm. and into marine environments as well and so um, we bring those that material back into the herbarium it gets dried and preserved so that our work can continue and um, a lot of the specimens are pressed onto a standard size card about 30 by 40 centimeters um, others are preser- uh, placed in archival boxes so our compactors which are the rolling cabinets yeah. that allow us to fit as many of these specimens into the collection as possible and we have 
currently approximately 150,000 so mm. and, and counting yeah there's so many and I mean there's the compactors which are kind of like those 60s um, library compactors you see and then there's these um, they're kind of like mahogany boxes with gold lettering on them that look like as I said at the start of the show they're a bit like they're out of Harry Potter they're just so cool that's right it captures that old picture yeah. of, of natural history collections from times past yeah yeah it's just beautiful and you had laid out for me some of the specimens to look at and one of them um that was really well it's amazing just how much history is behind it um which you you talked about was this work um or specimen collected by two uh men sir joseph banks and daniel solander um when they were on their voyage of the endeavor and uh that was um i guess really surprising to me because i looked at it and thought wow how does something so old you know stay intact i mean there are some bits that have you know slightly broken off and and you've put that in a little bag um but you know how how do you preserve something so old and what year was that from yeah so look these are our, that was one of our earlier collection earliest collections uh, se- dated to 1770 so obviously it was collected in the the label showed that it was collected by Banks and Solander in uh, Australia. That was mm. as specific as the locality was given. New Holland. New yeah. That's right. And, you know, it talks to the the, the longevity of our specimens uh, in that they are preserved in order that they can be researched and be informative for research in perpetuity. So our job is to preserve them well mm. and to handle them well. And they're quite robust once they're mounted or placed and, you know, curated so that they can be handled. The intention is that we work with them in under the microscope and we look at the features of the plant samples. So if we do our job well, if we dry the plants uh, well um, and completely and mount them well they are mm. robust to handling um, and I said you know as I say those specimens are still useful in terms of um, the, the very early specimens quantify and give us a standard by which we can compare the presence of tax species uh, relative to those early collections so mm. ideally we would go back to those locations and still find that particular species there uh, or else we would go back and say oh look you know that habitat is no longer present it's been converted mm. um, and and that species doesn't exist there but for whatever reason those early collections and you know collect having duplicates of species specimens that are collected over that long period of time over 200 years allows us to look at change in species distribution over time so those early collections have, are as important as the current the the recent collections that we have in our Mm. because it's a really important reference point in time and it's just like I guess when people you know they slice open a tree or they take a a bit of kind of bark um, and they can tell like the whole history of that tree and how it's been affected by the climate Uh, I'm guessing it's just as important to have that kind of progressive sampling of you know important species um, you know to to look at 
effects like maybe pests, I'm guessing, um, as well as the climate and the changing, you know, environment in Australia? That's exactly right. So um, we will always try and get, we never stop at a single collection of a particular species at a single location. We add continually to our collection um, in order to be able to capture that kind of data. And for instance, you know, we have a researcher working in our collection that's looking at changing flowering time for some of our alpine species and when we have species you know specimens that were collected over decades you can mm. see when species have been flowering and if that period of flowering is changing um, over decades yeah so they're really informative and and it allows us to as I say sort of capture and quantify change in a number of ways change in distribution change in flowering change in associates um, associations among species that are sometimes found together Plant distribution is surprisingly dynamic. You yeah. know, you sort of expect that when a plant is present in a particular location, that it'll always be uh, so, and that's in fact not the case. Mm. With changing land use, uh, etc. Yeah, and you were talking about the fact that it's really important um, to collect data and collect evidence and scientific studies, and make sure that they're still associated with the sample that has been studied, um, because you sometimes. Um, you and other researchers might utilise that sample and I guess pick a little bit of it to study, you know, for example, you're saying the DNA of a, a plant and and its kind of relevance then to future researchers and, and kind of future, I guess, areas to look at, um, you know, by the researchers that then pick that up and, you know, move to the next stage. Right. That's an interesting point, Amy. And and one of the things is that when we go out into the field, we don't only collect the plant material, we also collect a lot of data about that describes the specimen. So what height the, the plant was growing to, what other species it was growing with, and latitude and longitude data. Mm. And so those are so retained with the specimen uh, and they and they subsequently provide some context for understanding the the taxon, you know, for a range of tech of of um, uses and yeah. applications. So, when these specimens, you know, when the early specimens were collected back in the you know eighteen hundreds, they would never have expected that they would have been used to extract DNA and genetic data, which is now, of course, one of the primary uses of these specimens, or one of one of many uses of these specimens, is that we can actually take some leaf material and extract from it. Mm. Uh, genetic data and we can use that to estimate relationships among closely related species or among genera and so we've shifted from what the original intention of the specimen collection was to a completely different application of them of the samples Mm. and this is what one of the values of herbaria I think that because the data are well curated and actively managed, um, they are able to be applied in a vast range of ways. You know, we have researchers working in our collection who are looking at 
chemical compounds within plants that are collecting material to to test for medicinal activity in native species. Um, all sorts of applications that may not have been the original intention mm. of the person who collected it, but because the data are, are good and because they're well curated over time, they, they are very applicable in those different types of studies. Yeah, and that highlights, I guess, the fact that the scientific landscape has changed from when this um, herbarium was founded in 1926 um, because the technology that we have available to us means that you know we can utilize these specimens in even greater numbers and different ways and as you say like it's illuminating a range of things that had not been um, predicted that's right, and and you know one of the reasons that digitisation of our collection is so uh, important is that it enables the data that are associated with the specimens to be aggregated not just from our collection but from other herbaria nationally and internationally. So there are you know another there's approximately forty six herbaria nationally mm-hmm. um, in Australasia, should I say, New Zealand and Australia, and we are collectively digitising our collections and the data are uh, aggregated and made available to the public via the Australasian Virtual Herbarium. Mm. And and it, this digitisation initiatives put us into the realm of these big data projects. You know, science is increasingly moving into using big data sets and the 8 million specimens that are present in Australasia's herbaria certainly qualify in that sense so we not only are able to generate you know large data sets from individual collections but also cumulatively across our herbaria as a national resource. Mm. And you were saying that um, in the past these types of collections were paywalled and it was quite hard for the public to really engage with these collections without coming in in person and seeing them or being an academic or a researcher themselves. But, you know, part of the reason of why you're here is because you've been digitising a lot of your collection, I mean, you said um, you've got about 150,000 specimens. I mean, that's a very huge amount of digitisation to undertake and obviously it hasn't been completed. But, um, you know, you've done quite a lot already. What has been the process um, for that and how was that enabled? Like what was the, I guess, um, spurring factor? Like that was it philanthropy? Was it, um, you know, collaboration between institutions? What kind of, um, yeah, reasons did you get to the, to the point where you thought, yes, absolutely, we need to digitise these in, you know, huge high-resolution detail and make that accessible not just to researchers but people in the general public who are really interested in these species and topics? Yeah, sure. So the, you know, it's a process of digitisation that's been ongoing in Herbaria internationally for a while, you know, over the last decade at least. And, you know, there was that recognition that, of course, that 
uh, digitization of our data was the first initiative. So making those, and those data are publicly available, as I said, through um, Australasian Virtual Herbarium or Atlas of Living Australia, those kind of repositories. What hasn't been available is the um, subsequent initiative, which was to generate high-resolution images of our specimens. And there's a number of aspects that those images capture. You know, you can see the features because they are large images. You can see the features of the flowers. You can see nectary glands. You can see hairs on the leaves. And there's a lot of detail that's captured you can look at the handwriting and say, mm. "Oh, look! This has been this has been a species that we thought might have been collected by uh, this person, but in actual fact, the handwriting is not consistent with that person's handwriting." So, let, you know, those are the kind of features that you can see in an image that you can't see with just the data in mm. the database. And so, this initiative came out of a global initiative, the uh, JSTOR Global Plants Initiative, to produce high-resolution images, and and this was something that that was um, the uh, Australasian herbaria contributed to. The protocol were generated for producing these large images. And we have um, considered that it's... Uh, we should share this resource publicly. Mm. They're behind a subscription paywall at the moment for those initial images that were generated. Um, And we have uh, uh, generated about 10,000 images to date. Um, It's been technically difficult because of the size of the images. You know, each image is 275 megabytes. So Mm, if you're wanting to make it for people to actually be able to look at the image and zoom in to see those features and possibly download it, downloading three images takes a a gigabyte of of capacity. So we have had the technical expertise at the University of Melbourne to work with programmers uh, and been able to... you know, establish some of the framework to make it possible for those images to be shared. And I think if you look at our collection online, you know, it, it's quite intuitive to work around and you can really zoom in on those features of the images very easily and it's very responsive. So um, we're hoping that people will find it a, a useful um, resource and mm-hmm. enable them to really explore our collection. So you don't have to come down to Parkville to, to see our collection um, and to see the kind of specimens that we have in our collection. Um, yeah, you can yeah. do it. You can interact with that collection globally. Exactly, it brings it alive. Um, just to see them visually is fascinating, and you know you can go, you can explore through different um, families. And uh, you know, I was researching and looking at some of um, the mountain ash trees that I love um, in the Central Highlands, and was looking at the leaves. And you know, there's some kind of I guess bugs that must have like got onto the leaves and created those dots on the on the leaves and you know it's just so interesting to see the different characteristics of some of these plants which you would never see all of them like that that range of diversity one person would not ever be able to encounter um you know unless you're looking at them online i mean the fact that you know there's algae which um you know you showed me there in the compactors and i mean a diver you know has to go collect that like algae's you know doesn't just hang around anywhere um you know fungi is like a, you know as you were saying a really hard thing to identify sometimes because it has different life stages and um different appearances at different points so i mean this this is a really diverse collection um what are some of the i guess 
more obscure or different um, specimens that have attracted attention over the years that um, perhaps you know, have been utilised for research or utilised by people in the arts or, you know, there's a whole range of reasons why one might become fascinated by these specimens. Yeah, and I think you hit on a really important point there, Amy, is that when we bring these specimens or samples that have been collected from remote areas into a single collection, then you can look at two samples from northern WA and northern Queensland next to each other you know side by side and you can look at the ways in which they're similar and the ways in which they're different and and actually aggregating them that way is really fun and and interesting in terms Mm -hmm. of looking at their properties etc but yeah look some of the really fascinating stories are I think work that's ongoing um, in in research projects and and at the moment we have a lot of um, we have several students who are working on pollination um, research looking at trying to identify Identify pollinators of our native species, mm. and surprisingly, we don't know for many species what their uh, specialist pollinators are. So, we, for instance, have a student, um, Tom Sayers, is a PhD student who's looking at Typhonium, and Typhonium is actually a native genus that is uh, in the Arum family. It's you know. Listeners might know of the Amorphophallus titanum, the corpse flower. What oh, they yes. might not realise is that we have a, a diverse genus here, Typhonium, that's native to Australia, and we don't know the pollinators or a lot about the pollinators of that particular group. and And Tom is researching that, and he's found that these um, species in this genus. Um, are thermogenic in that they change the temperature in their inflorescence up to 15 degrees um, and it's one of the ways that they attract pollinators um, mm. they are deceptive in that they have um, co- scent compounds also they smell in the same way that the corpse flower does, they smell of um, d- like dung or carrion in an effort to attract pollinators <laughs> but they also provide a heat source for the insects and two closely related species one attracts flies and um the other attracts uh, a, a different group uh, <laughs> what is it flies and beetles i'm Something not sure else. yeah that's right but you're it, making a good point there which is that um it's beetles. not just there you go <laughs> that makes sense with the dung thing um but it, i mean it's the point is it's not just bees that pollinate flowers i mean a lot of people, you know, I did an interview just recently about bees with Jürgen Tautz and he was talking about the the fascinating um, things that bees do to find really good sources of nectar and um, and I was saying yesterday I did an interview with Danielle Claude about, um, you know, orchids and the fact that um, they have a very deceptive way of um, being pollinated by wasps. I mean, what are, I mean, your, your particular area of expertise... Um, um, is, is focused on a very particular family of, um, you know, well, it's actually a really diverse family, as you were saying. Uh, so I'll let you explain how diverse it is. But there are some quite well-known flowers within that family that um, that you've studied. Yeah, look, that's right. My my work is on the order Asparagales, which are the it's a group of closely related families and uh, genera. There's and a lot of work has been done towards understanding the relationship 
relationships of uh, non-Australian, you know, global diversity, not so much on the Australian diversity. We have 48 genera here, um, and my research is looking at um, establishing the relationships of, of these groups. But Asparagales includes things like orchids, uh, allium, the onion, irises, a whole range of, um, of re- you know, cultivated and ornamental plants. Mm. So really important um, group in, to understand our native um, flora. And one of the groups that's close to my heart is the genus Borea. We were talking about it yesterday. Yeah. It's, it's one of it's, the genus is... Um, is known as resurrection plants because they're able to withstand these very, very dry environments and um, their leaves just turn brown um, when there's no water available but as soon as there's water available they'll spring back to life and and um, yeah they have re- some really interesting distributions in Australia actually there's one um, in Victoria and all the other species in the group in the genus are in Western Australia and Queensland mm. and we have this one species in Victoria and we're trying to look at what are the the processes that have established those relationships the diversification within that group and why are they found in such widely spread environments. Yeah. Um, and that's really interesting that, you know, it is so diverse and even within a family, they're not even vaguely similar looking. Like some of them are, but they're just so different. That's it's hard right. to imagine how they're related. That's exactly right. And that's why there's questions that remain as to how can another couple of genera that are in this group are xantheria, the grass trees, which you, listeners will will know mm. how unique common, they are yeah. um, and, and, and iconic in the yeah. Australian flora and they're closely related to uh, things like Dianella which is in Lomandura which are cult plants that are also native but uh, grow you know the cespitose they grow close to the ground and just yeah. have a, a clumping sort of habitat they don't have that large stalk that, that raises them above the ground so mm. these are all closely related and it's hard to find the morphological features that that they share, um, which is why genetic data is really useful. So we use DNA um, data that are generated from from specimens and from our own collections in the field, and 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 we are able to estimate the relationships that way. Mm. Now, I'm talking with Dr. Joe Birch, and um, she's the University of Melbourne's herbarium curator curator of the herbarium either way one or the other and um, she's joining me right now in the studio and we're talking about the digitized collection which uh, is available online um, you can look it up now or later you just google university of melbourne herbarium and it'll, it'll be up there on the unimel website um, one of the really disturbing things you showed me yesterday was um, a parasite type looking Thing, um, that's my highly technical term for it. But um, I think it was called the Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Excuse my Latin. I think, um, but it it was just so creepy um, to see. It's kind of like aliens, um, where this like plant takes so like kind of destabilizes and poisons insects and then like makes them go crazy and then they die and they're taken over um by this living 
organism and and then I like googled it and just to see what happens and of course there's a David Attenborough video so you can watch this poor ant die and go crazy and get like stabbed and taken over by this plant and I was just like whoa so creepy and kind of gross but fascinating at the same time and you've got those in your collection as well that's right so our fungi collection are are fantastic and there's discoveries to be found like that in every box essentially Mm. you know fungal diversity is is fantastic and actually very poorly documented or incompletely documented should I say you know Um, and so but that is one of those fascinating stories that um, where you have a parasitic fungi whose host is in this case it was a caterpillar and a different species grows on an ant and when you're collecting fungi often you'll grow you'll collect the substrate or whatever it is that it grows on so we do have a few uh, insects and animals (laughs) in our collection Um, but mostly so that we can have preserve the fungi um, that grows out of and takes over the um, body of the ant in order to reproduce and it's a fascinating story and one that yeah you should really read up on it and watch if you're so inclined but don't be eating while you're doing it (laughs) it almost put me off dinner um but it is you know really fascinating that there's specific fungi types that can take over a specific insect like it's actually targeted at that one type of insect that's right and you know in that taking over their host they will induce the um, host to move into an environment that allows the spread of the spores that are produced so it's really um, quite a a empowering um, aspect for the fungi in order to ensure its reproduction not so empowering for the host. No (laughs) it was really interesting to watch that video because the the fellow ants grabbed this kind of staggering ant that's like oh my god I've been taken over by this fungi and it looks drunk and they just like grab it and then dump it somewhere far away from the colony because they're like get away you know we know that this is like toxic and it could spread and you know create this whole madness and here in the whole colony. The fungi is dispersed and, yeah. and able to establish a new individual etc cetera, etc cetera. so it reaches its ultimate you know Yeah, and it was really interesting that it's um, about maintaining a balance. Like, I mean, the the rationale behind it apparently was that, you know, you didn't want one insect type to, like, become too dominant in the insect world. So it was, I guess, apparently a way of nature regulating itself. Right, and I guess for any of those, you know, interactions that are very, um, you can't have, you can't eliminate your host completely, can you? Otherwise, so you need to, it needs to be somewhat balanced so that you can continue to infect um, new individuals. Yeah, so you have to be good but not too good. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's it's a precise science. That's right. Yeah, Um, I mean, it's just it is so interesting. And that just goes to show what a kind of delight this herbarium is, is that you can find 
that you know that that like kind of wave it's not just the specimens itself but the way it interacts with its environment with all the other living things in its environment um one of the things i just want to touch on before you go is that there was this massive kind of controversy um around a, a specimen or group of specimens that were sent from paris uh last year to australia um and and there was just this kind of I guess, really sad um, circumstance that happened through really just like a, a paper error, like a bureaucratic kind of bungle. It wasn't necessarily anyone's fault, but like, you know, some kind of really important specimens um, came here to be loaned, um, which you said is, you know, a common thing is to the kind of sharing of different specimens and that it got destroyed um, by our biosecurity um, people by accident. I mean, that's something which um, people may not realise is that there's some really important, highly valuable um, work, like species, just like there are highly valuable artworks. Um, and it was compared to an artwork, you know, that kind of uniqueness that it had. Um, could you tell me a little bit about that and I guess how that's meant that um, that things have changed for the better perhaps in terms of preventing any kind of future mistakes? Yeah, sure. Look, it's, it p- talks to a couple of aspects of, the, of our work in Herbaria in that, you know, these specimens, once they're collected, are quite valuable in terms of describing our biodiversity and and they are in that sense irreplaceable. So if they inadvertently are destroyed, which can happen in a number of ways, Mm. um, you know, fire, natural disasters, biosecurity, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, they're not able to be replaced. We're not able to go back and recollect them um, from times past. So it talks to the, um, the value of digitisation um, in that it doesn't, you know, the generation of these images don't replace the object. You, you can't, um, it doesn't um, work that way, but it does provide us a fail-safe um, that mm. can capture some of the information that was present on the actual specimen. And Herbaria have this really well-established tradition of sharing specimens um, and sending specimens to uh, specialists globally where they can be worked on. You know, for us, digitisation is fantastic because it means people can access our collection from any corner of the globe, um, and it prevents for those really valuable specimens um, we can send an image before we send the actual specimen mm, um, yeah. so we will continue to send the specimens um, and you know that particular incident the good that's come out of it is that Australian herbaria work very collectively um, we have a group, the council head of Australasian herbaria, it's Australian and New Zealand herbaria uh, directors and managers and we were able to respond to that event and work with AQUIS and the biosecurity um, folk to make sure that it didn't happen again. And and, um, we have coordinated very well in order to set up those protocols so that that specimens aren't destroyed and that we can meet the requirements of of maintaining the biosecurity of Australia, which is very important, Mm. but also recognise that herbarium specimens, uh, there's the value in being able to exchange them and minimise any risk associated with doing so. So a lot of, you know, while it it was a 
unbearable yeah. uh, situation and um, not one that we would have hoped for, but we have uh, the response has been great. Mm. And in a very short space of time, we've been able to work collaboratively with our biosecurity colleagues to to move forward with a with a better protocol. Honestly, so. Mm. That's really good to hear because yeah. it was very sad. Yes. Um, and it, I guess it speaks to the globalisation of research now because it's just so um, so much more accessible, at least, to, to people, not just, um, you know, formal researchers, but citizen scientists who can now access this particular herbarium's um, collection, a lot of it at least online. So that's really good. That's exactly right. Yeah, look, we don't... You can't predict what the data and the images are used for. I know there's there's colleagues, researchers out there who are doing um, agricultural work and and horticultural work looking for native species that might be suitable for uh, establishing in gardens, Mm. that kind of thing. A lot of our data, anyway, we do get user stats from our data that are provided um, and made accessible to the public and and they're used for education, for biosecurity the whole gamut Um, and so yeah look I just encourage people to go and visit the collection and and find the stories that can be told that you know they can bring their expertise to because we it's it's of great value to us to have people looking at them the material at the specimens and in 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 using them so yeah. yeah thank you so much joe for coming in and sharing the delights of this herbarium and congratulations to you and your colleagues for making it so illuminating and interesting great a lot real pleasure to be here amy so thanks for the, for the invitation my pleasure that was dr joe birch who is the curator of the university of melbourne's herbarium which was established in 1926 As she said, it's got at least 150,000 specimens and they're constantly collecting more and it is the largest university herbarium in Australia, so that's really awesome. And um, as I said, if you go to the University of Melbourne Herbarium website, it's at biosciences.unimelb.edu.au. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.